today I'm going to introduce the theme of worship, just so we're all on the same page, all understand what we're referring to, because if you get that bit wrong, then the rest of the series isn't going to make much sense. And then we will look at subjects such as speech, as worship, how we use our speech, um, time as worship, how we use our time, sex as worship, how we view sex in the framework of worship, food as worship, and work as worship. Yeah, those are the five after this week, which makes six, yeah, and work as worship. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, I think it will be, uh, I feel like it's something God's put on my heart and spoken to me to do. And um, the whole idea is that it broadens out our understanding of worship so we get a biblical view. I'll give you some Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament definition of the word worship. It means to depress. <laughs> Doesn't sound great, first of all. But if you go with me, you'll get the drift. To depress or to prostrate or to bow or to stoop. It's about being low. It's about, it's about, um, it's about humility before one who is supreme. The New Testament word is to kiss which from first appearances sounds much more positive, but then when it, when it unpacks that, it's kind of similar to a dog licking its owner's hand, is what, is what, the, uh, is what the definition is. Um, you think, oh, so what's the deal there? Well, the deal is, is that it's affection, but it's not affection between two equals. It's the affection of a subordinate to one who's superior. Um, <clears throat> so from there, we see that a worshipful life is a life of humble affection towards whoever it is you worship. The worshipful life can't be proud, therefore, can't be self-exalting, can't be conceited, and neither can it be cold, because it's about affection. The worshipful life involves the heart and the mind and the will, and how those three come together and give expression through the body. That's worship. We're going to start with uh, a quote from Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, which is where we're going to start and where we're going to end. So we're going to go full, full circle today. And this is a New Testament description, not a definition, but a description of a worshipful life. I forgot my memory stick, so Ollie is typing this up really quickly. So do forgive if there are some errors, which there are. Okay. <laughs> and whatever you do, um, in, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's New Testament Christian worship. Whatever you do, word, deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Everything in the sense, everything as representing Jesus. You could do everything comfortably in his presence. Everything that you're doing, whether word or deed, is to glorify him, make him known. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's an overflow of thankfulness, a, great, a grateful life. So that's New Testament worship. Obviously, therefore, it covers a whole spectrum of things, everything to do with life. It's quite demanding. So I want us to journey through that and make sense of it so that we can um, get to a good place uh, at the end. I want to contend for four things. Number one, that we're made to worship. Number two, that worship is 24-7. Number three, that finding the correct object of your worship is a difference between life and death. And uh, number four, a way has been made for us to live a worshipful life. They're the four things I'm going to be contending for in terms of worship. Um, I think that most people um, feel that life has a purpose. I think that is, I don't think that's twee or cliched. I think it's true. I think even the atheists believe that life has a purpose. Their framework of thinking says, no, it hasn't because everything's random. But then you look at the bus campaign and clearly 
they believe that life has a purpose. The purpose is this, not to worry, but to enjoy your life. Because that's what the poster said, wasn't it? There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So the message coming through there is this. Listen, if you spend your whole life worrying, you're being robbed. You weren't made for that. You were made to enjoy your life. That's a statement of faith. You think, well, how can someone as brainy as that make that kind of error? Because this whole idea of purpose and meaning is written far deeper than the intellect. It's written into the core of who we are. We all believe, don't we, I think, even if we don't articulate it, that life holds significance and that certain things just matter. Things, certain things are just important. Love, it's important. Relationships, are important. Friendships, generosity. I mean, look at Comic Relief. Comic Relief is a campaign that brings together people of all kinds of different beliefs, secular people, religious people, and they come together. Why? Because they believe that life is precious and where people are suffering, if something can be done, that's a good thing. That's purpose, that's meaning. That's a statement of faith. All of us have experienced those moments where we suddenly feel like we're doing what we were meant to do. Have you experienced that? You just, it could be singing, it could be knitting, it could be looking after someone needy, it could be surfing. We're all very different. But you just think, this is what I was made for. They're wonderful moments. And, but they, 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 they point to something much bigger that we were made for something. I want, I want to suggest there's two main problems with this whole idea of worship, and that's what the problems we're going to tackle today. Problem number one is this. Whatever the meaning is, it doesn't seem to be clear. It doesn't seem obvious. Okay, so there's a meaning, but I, this is my meaning, what's your meaning? This is what feels significant to me, what is it to you? If there's a, actually one meaning why we're here, it doesn't seem obvious. It seems like you've got to figure it out yourself. We don't seem to be able to agree, isn't that what a lot of religious wars are about? This is the ultimate meaning, no, this is, well let's get our swords out and see who wins. And whoever wins, we can, we can have that as the ultimate meaning. So we don't really want to go down that road. But I think we can think to ourselves, why isn't it painted in the sky? Why isn't it trumpeted out clearly? Why, is it, why does it seem so subtle? It's so easy to miss. It doesn't seem fair. We could think to ourselves, if God is real and wants us to know and worship him, why doesn't he make it more obvious? So the first villain, if you like, that we want to hit on, head on today is this lack of clarity, which leads to a lack of certainty. If it was clearer, we could really throw ourselves in. If it was clearer, we could really give ourselves. If it was clearer, we wouldn't have to hold back and hedge our bets and kind of in with one leg and out with the other. Why isn't it clearer? Why isn't it painted in the sky? Well, it's an interesting question because the Bible says it is. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above, you were great before, man. We was great back with the Romans. (laughs) The sky above proclaims his handiwork. What they're saying is, is that creation is a proclamation. It's speaking, it's declaring, something's being said, something's being proclaimed. They declare what? What? The glory of God. There is a God, there is a creator, but... Perhaps more than that, he is glorious. And if someone's glorious, then they are worthy of your worship. So it is painted in the sky. Romans 1 puts it even clearer. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20 says this. For what can be known about God is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation. It's the same statement of Psalm 19. Creation is a clear proclamation. It's all there. It's all there to be seen and to be acknowledged. So every sunset, in that sense, is a painting in the sky. That's not just naive. That's not just babyish. It is a painting in the sky. Well, then some will say, okay, but if there is a God, then why doesn't he actually come down and show himself? Well, that's interesting because the Bible says he has. John 1, verses 1 and verse 14 say this. I'll read it till it comes up. In the, be- in the beginning was the Word, which is the start of John's Gospel introducing Jesus, and the Word was with God, so distinct, and the Word was God, so divine. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a man. Staggering. And we've seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of favour, full of truth. He has. He has come down and he's shown himself. Listen to what Jesus said about himself in John 14, verse 9. Jesus said this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because some people say, well, that's what they said about Jesus, but what did Jesus say about himself? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. And then some will say, well, if he was God... Okay, so I've got it. I've got it that it, you know... It has been painted in the sky. Okay, I've got it that God has made himself known. But if he was God, why hasn't he sorted things out? Why why is it still such a mess? Surely the world would be put right if this was God on his saving mission. Well, he has, and he will, and I will sum it up rather than going through about 100 scriptures. Okay, I'll just sum it up for you. It's very important that you understand this. You might be thinking as a Christian, sitting there thinking this is so basic. It's so important that you don't move away from this. You need to go on to meet, but you need to be clear on this stuff as well. Firstly, the life he lived was vicarious. That means he lived it on our behalf. The life that Jesus lived, he lived on our behalf. He lived the kind of life that humans are supposed to live but don't, and he lived it on our behalf. See, if he just lived as an example, that is going to be the most depressing thing in the world. Surely. If it's just an example, don't get inspired by that. You should be depressed by that. You know, like I said, I think I used an illustration a few weeks ago, the Usain Bolt thing. You know, you get Usain Bolt in 100 metres as an example for us. Is that inspiring? Well, on one level, until you try and do it yourself. <laughs> then it becomes really discouraging. So if Jesus was just an example, it's not enough. It was vicarious. He lived the kind of life that we should live, but don't live the kind of life we were made to live, made to glorify God, made to worship, made to fully obey the Father. He lived that life. He stood up to the test and the Satan and every temptation, and yet was without sin. He did it, and in the righteousness that the Father gave to him or spoke over him as a result of that life, he gives to us as a gift. It's a vicarious life. And then he's a vicarious death, so he's death in our place. The judgment we deserve for not living the kind of life that we should live, the wrath that we store up through every sinful action, word, attitude, he bore in his body on the cross. I mean, staggering. I can't imagine what it was like for him to, in, his, in, in, in one man to receive the judgment for the whole world. See, it was, so, it was so disgusting that he became sin. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It was, a sub, it was substitutionary, vicarious on our behalf. And then he rose from the dead on our behalf. That means he beat death for us 
So that as a believer, if you die, you simply fall asleep in that sense. And he ascended to the Father, and in that sense took us with him. So if you're a believer, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. It's all on our behalf. Grace, 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 grace. It's not about, oh, well, I prayed. That is insulting. You are where you are because of him and because of what he has done. This is glorious. In his life, death and resurrection, he kick-started the new creation. So now when you come to know the Lord, you're born again. That's more than just, oh, that's nice, it feels different now. It means you have become part of the new creation. We live in between visits. His first visit and his second visit. The, the, the period between those two visits is called the Day of Salvation and is marked by patience. Some people moan, well, if Jesus was coming back, he would have come back already. It's almost as if, well, has he forgotten? The Bible says it's because of patience. He wants none to perish. It's mercy. It's mercy that it's been 2,000 years. And so we live in between these visits and then when he comes back, the Bible is clear that then the whole of the new creation will kick off. This earth and this heaven will be, will be destroyed. There will be a brand new heavens and a brand new earth where righteousness dwells. And those who have been born again, those who have the new creation in them, who have been fitted out for that, will be with him in it. Those who have rejected him will be rejected. That's, that is the message. That is the message of the Bible. So the villain, actually, this lack of clarity, was not only dealt with by Jesus, but a new villain becomes apparent. Is it? Is the problem that it's not clear? Well, I want us to pick up that Romans passage again which speaks about God revealing himself through what's made. But this time, I want to look at it with the sentence that comes before and the one that comes afterwards, so we can discover who the true villain is. Here we go. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, maybe earlier when I was reading about creation, you're you're thinking, well, I can't see it. Here's the explanation ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth. Then we get onto the bit we read already. For what can be known about God is made plain to them. God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now listen to this. For though they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their futile hearts became, and their hearts became darkened. You have an order there. You can see an order, something happening there. First, there's the willful suppression of the truth. I don't want to know about this God because if, if I admit to what I'm seeing, then I admit to accountability, responsibility, moral absolute, and then I can't follow my sinful desires. After the suppression of the truth comes the futility of your mind. Your mind becomes futile. You no longer set your mind on God, so you set your mind, because you're made to worship, to worship other things. It's called idolatry in the Bible. So you either worship sex, or you worship another person, or you worship a hobby, and the Bible says it's futility. You were not made for that. And then after that, your heart becomes darkened. So you, 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 you end up like that, you're groping around, and people tell you about Jesus, and you go, I don't know what you're talking about. There it is. There it is. We've become the villain. Without the Holy Spirit's illumination, we can't see it anymore. And then we mock those who see it. We become the villain. And so then you ask, so I'm the problem? Yeah. So has God given up on us? Back to Jesus. Back to Jesus. But then you say, why does he bother to put it right? Why would God bother to put it right? Well, love. He loves you. He loves you. And please don't have a sentimental understanding of love when I say that. It's not, oh, that's nice. No, it's not. It's not nice. That's insulting. 
It's a jealous, burning love. A love that feels the pain of every sin, that feels in his heart every rejection. It's the love, he loves his creation. And because he loves us, that's why he can be hurt by us. Even though he's sovereign and transcendent and all those things, none of those things are compromised, but he's absolutely moved with affection over us. He loves you. That's the bottom line. And because he wants what's best for you, we can understand, okay, so what is the purpose of creation? Why are we here? Let's look at Colossians 1, verses 15 to 16. Colossians 1, please, Ollie. It's all right? No problem. Great. This is about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So we've seen this already, Jesus is God whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. But listen to this. All things were not only created through him, but they were created for him. That's the purpose of creation. Why am I here? Jesus. You were not made for religion. You were not made for a hobby. You were not made for a task. You were made for a person. You were made for not a created person. No one should be able to demand that kind of influence over your life. Not a boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife, mother or father or any other friendship. No, no. you were made for the uncreated creator. He is who you were made for. That is why Jesus feels in John 10.10 that he can offer us life in all its fullness. How can he say that? What you can almost think, what a claim. Because he made life. Life comes from him. He is the life. He can offer you life in all its fullness. That's the first villain. The second villain is easy to deal with, so I'll be shorter on it. But it's this idea of subservience. We don't like it. We don't like that. Because when it bites, it really bites. It's okay to sing the songs, isn't it? It's easy, actually, isn't it? And I'm not saying that we're insincere, but I will speak personally. I love to come and sing these songs of absolute devotion and submission to the Lord. Working it out the next day is a lot harder. So it's not that I'm insincere, but there's a difference between singing it and doing it. Amen? It's not just me, is it? (laughs) We struggle with being subservient. Why? Because we are proud. You see, there's a God in heaven who suggests that we should be in a relationship with him, but that we are the inferior party. And if you don't get God, it can sound a bit sick. It can sound a bit like a power trip. You think, well, what is it with him? Why does he have to always be on top? Because it can sound like he just delights in being in charge. How do we tackle it? Let's look at Jesus. Jesus was the most enviable person to have ever lived on this planet. He was able to love his enemies. What kind of internal resource does it take to be able to love your enemies? Ooh. If if you're not relating to what I'm saying, you probably don't have any enemies. No one's ever slighted you. No one's ever cut you up. No one's ever spoken nasty into your life. No one's ever betrayed you. If it has happened to you, you know what I'm saying. To love your enemies, Jesus did it. Hanging on the cross, as if that wasn't enough, then being mocked and taunted to do what he could do. If you're the son of God, get yourself down. At any moment, he could do it. And his father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. They're responsible and they're accountable, and yet Jesus says they're ignorant. Have mercy. What? Would you like to be like that? Would you like to have that kind of resource in you where you could just forgive and walk in love the whole every day? Would you like that? Sure you would. Full of joy. The Bible says he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions. He shone out for his joy. Shone out. There was a lightness. There was a joy about his life. 
It wasn't all heavy doom and gloom. You know, he would predict his death, it was serious, but people, crowds don't, crowds aren't drawn to a misery, are they? Miseries generally end up by themselves, or with a poor spouse. You got duped. <laughs> Miseries don't gather a crowd. Full of joy. Would you like that? I'm sure you would. Unceasing peace. Just never knocked off from peace. Never. Being demands, pressure, hassle. He is mourning his, the death of his cousin John the Baptist and he goes away to get some time by himself and there's the crowd. And, he's, and what, what does the Bible say? He has compassion on him. He doesn't get self-indulgent. Oh, give me some, I need some me time. He doesn't do that. He's just giving. He's just full of peace. He's never knocked out of that place. Authority over sickness, physical and mental. Would you like that? Authority over all sickness. They bring their sick for miles so that Jesus could just touch them and heal them. Mental sickness and physical sickness. Emotionally functional. The most emotionally functional man to ever walk the planet. Able to weep. Able to rejoice. Just, he worked in that way. Comfortable around men and women. In his band of followers, there were men and women. He was able to relate to them, understood how women worked and, and was a blessing to them, understood the guys and was a blessing to them. I'm just trying to big up the man of Jesus. It's so important that you see this strong but gentle, unafraid of anything. What would you have done faced with the Gerasene demoniac? What would you have done faced with that guy? He breaks chains when they try and, try and tie him up. He hangs around in the graveyard naked, cutting himself and screaming. I mean, you meet him down Cameron High Street. Are you going to stay on the same side of the road? I don't think so. Why? Because you think, I don't want to, I don't want to get near that. What does Jesus do? Well, before Jesus can do anything, the guy's just bowing at his feet. Just sets him free. Before you know it, he's clothed in his right mind. Unafraid. No fear. Full of life. A frequenter of parties. He's always at the parties, hanging out with the, you know, the, the naughty ones, and yet not reliant on others for, for his own well-being. He could do 40 days in the wilderness, in solitude, no food, and withstand the testing of the devil. What a man! What a man! Victorious in all temptation, the list goes on. And, but here's the point. He is the most vivid portrait of a worshipper that this planet has ever known. That's the point. You look at him and you marvel, you look at him and you envy, but in a nutshell, what, what did he model, worship? I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father say. I've come to do the will of my Father. That's why Jesus can say, the Father is greater than I. Voluntary submission. Laid aside the privileges of deity to become a man. If that doesn't inspire you to worship, if that doesn't renew your mind so you can see submission, acknowledgement of superiority as a good thing, as a thing that will create true humanity in you, I don't know what will. I do not know what will. This is humanity. Jesus comes to model humanity on our behalf. He is glorious. So it's not a problem. Maybe the problem is that we've been sold a lie and the lie is that by putting ourselves first, by insisting that we know best and by refusing to humble ourselves to anyone that we, find, that we come across in life, that then we will find life to the full. Get ahead. Get ahead. Assert yourself. Don't show weakness in any area. Then you'll really be established. Is that a lie? I think it's a terrible lie. I think it's a terrible lie. I think the biblical way of strength is that you hide in him. You hide in him and your strength is not your own. Your strength is his strength. That's the biblical way. 
That's what the Bible teaches. It's no coincidence that Jesus is the first person to be resurrected from the grave. He bowed lower than anyone else, and so God exalted him first. You want to be exalted in life? There's nothing wrong with that. You want to be great in the kingdom? There's nothing wrong with that. Get low. That's the route. That's the way. That is the way. I used to live for myself. I used to live for myself, and it, it was, the thing was just crumbling. And then I gave myself genuinely to Jesus. And there's been an exaltation that I can't explain other than it being God. People would come to me and say, can we talk about how to be a good husband? I think, if only you knew. If only you knew what I would have been. <laughs> Horrific. Oh, oh I, love the, I love what you're doing with your kids. Talk to me about it. I think, oh, if only you knew. The thought of any kind of commitment petrified me. Petrified me. I'd run a mile. Jesus brings absolute fundamental change. That's what he does. Humility leads to exaltation. So how do we become worshippers? Well, the next six weeks we're going to highlight this, but here's the general pattern. Repentance. You get into repentance, which means change. I'm no longer going to be proud. Hold on to my way. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to repent. But then it's a lifestyle of repentance. If you're a Christian and you're not used to saying sorry, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Apologising is incredibly humbling, but it should be a way of life because you make a lot of mistakes. Then faith, absolute trust in Jesus. He's gone that far for me. The Bible says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Huh? He's done that. Of course he'll look after you. Of course he'll provide for you. Of course he'll make the way clear at the right time. Of course he will. How could he not? He's done that. Baptism. We're going to have a baptism next month. We're trying to sort out the details. If you've never been baptised and you're a believer, as a believer, you need to be baptised as a believer. That is part of your obedience. That is part of your discipleship. It's part of, the Bible describes it, it's part of you demonstrating powerfully you've been buried with Christ. Your old life to the grave. Raised up with him into a brand new life. If you've not been baptised, then please speak to me. We can book you in for that day. And then worship. This life I've been speaking about. Which takes us back to Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I hope now, after this journey this morning, you can see, what else could I do? Romans 12, 1 and 2 puts it beautifully. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of service. To hold back from the Lord is entirely unreasonable. Something is wrong in your mind. You've not understood the gospel to hold back. He's shown himself 100% trustworthy, wise, all-powerful, all-goodness. Why would you want to hold anything back from one like that? So we're made to worship. Worship is 24-7. It's vital that it's the correct object, the creator and nothing created. And everything has been done by the wonder of Jesus to open a way for us to live that worshipful life. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing. And as we do so, we're going to break the bread and drink the wine. Jesus told us to do this to remember his body broken on the cross and his blood poured out for us. This is what believers do. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a vivid 
reminder, but it's more than a memorial because a memorial is something you do over a dead person. Jesus is alive, okay? So we expect to encounter Jesus by his spirit as you take the bread and the wine. You might think, well, how, what's the proper way of doing it? The proper way of doing it is this. As you take the bread, just in your heart, be saying, Jesus, I want to be part of you afresh. I want to take you into me and I want to be all swallowed up in you. Okay? Thank you, your body was broken for me. Then you take the wine that Jesus says, I'm going to drink your flesh, I'm going to I eat your flesh and drink your blood, as you said. Because you said, if I don't do this, I've got no life in myself. And expect the Holy Spirit to impart life to you afresh as you do this. Expect to be filled with the Spirit as you do this. If you're in Christ, but there's willful sin in your life, please get right with God before you take the bread and the wine. Otherwise, the Bible says you're taking it unworthily. Willful, deliberate, known sin, unconfessed. Please get right with God. If it's against someone in the church, please get right with them. Just go and speak to them quietly, apologise, humble yourself. If you're not a believer, then I would say, please just leave it. Because it's not like a charm that kind of just works anyway. It's not like that. It's an expression of faith for those who know the Lord. If you want to become a believer, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if you do, you want to put your trust in Christ after hearing about him today, come and take the bread and take the wine as a way of you saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I thank you for all you've done for me. Now I want to give myself to you. And then once you've done that, come and speak to someone afterwards, someone who you came to church with, or myself, I'd love to speak with you, just so we can give you wise advice how to begin the Christian life. Okay? The band would like to come up.